Today we'll be looking at Psalm 130, one of my favorite psalms. Uh, It's been categorized as one of the penitential psalms, psalms that are often to do with lamenting over sin. And as you can see in the heading there in the Bible, it was also one of the 15 psalms or songs of ascent. These psalms were sung during the pilgrimage to Jerusalem on certain festivals throughout the year. As the worshippers climbed to the Temple Mount, they sang these psalms. Before we look at Psalm 130, let's pray. Gracious Father God, we give you thanks for Psalm 130 that we can actually cry out to you when we're convicted about our sin. Thank you that you're a merciful God. Please speak through your word and please use me also to speak your word faithfully, clearly, boldly, and with love. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I subscribe to a YouTube channel called Team Fearless, and it's basically full of self-motivational videos. And to be honest, I'm just there for the thumbnails. Okay, I'm going to share with you some of the thumbnails. Here's one. I walk alone. I'm okay on my own. Here's another one. Only those who dare to fight for a great life have the chance to live a great life. Or here's another one. If they tell you 99% fail, don't lose faith. Believe you are in the 1%. And when you click on one of these videos, you get the inspirational background music. Then you get someone shouting stuff at you, like a coach slapping you in the face, telling you to get back in the boxing ring called life. And it's incredibly popular with 3.8 million subscribers, which tells me that a lot of people are are looking for answers when they face failure and disappointment in life. You know, at some point, all of us are going to reach a point where we say, I've really made a mess of my life. I've made a mess of my relationship with others. I've made a mess of my relationship with God, and I need to do something about it. Uh, There'll be times also when you will be on the receiving end of someone else's mess, be that a spouse, a business partner, a friend, a sibling, a parent. When you are in your mess or put in someone else's mess, what do you do? Well, Team Fearless will tell you that the answer lies in yourself. Don't give up. Just look within. Try harder. You've got to overcome until you achieve your dreams. Friends, what do you think about that approach? What do you reckon? From my observation, from those I meet, I don't think it works. I see a lot of people living out this slogan instead. Fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it so you can't admit weakness, you can't admit failure, you can't say sorry, where you just pretend you've got to have it all together and you're scared of others knowing that it's all smoke and mirrors. And you just hope, against hope, that someday everything in your life will just improve. There's got to be a better way, doesn't it? And I think there is, and Psalm 130 presents... Another way, a better way, when you're facing the mess. Uh, This week I had one of those God moments. I was meeting with someone from church at their house, and uh, they had this sign up in their dining room as a reminder to the members of their family, your grace abounds 
in deepest waters. Your grace abounds in deepest waters. It was a God moment because I was thinking about Psalm 130 and then God showed me this. So I took a photo for you. Forget the Team Fearless slogans. Remember this one because this is what Psalm 130 is all about. Now we're going to look at four things today in the psalm. Firstly, out of the depths. Secondly, who could stand? Thirdly, I wait for the Lord. And fourthly, put your hope in. Well, firstly, out of the depths. Verse 1, out of the depths I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive for my cry for help. Uh, We saw last week in Psalm 88 that God welcomes our cries of utter despair. And as we're going to see in the next section, the psalmist in this place is, is in this place because he's crying out to God because of his own sin. The ocean for the Israelites represented a place of chaos and of judgment. You didn't want to be in the ocean, but here the psalmist is drowning in the ocean of his own sin. Uh, it reminds us of Jonah the prophet, doesn't it? When God told Jonah to go to uh, Nineveh to preach to his sworn enemy, Jonah's enemy, Jonah disobeyed God. He ran the opposite way. And eventually Jonah finds himself literally hurled into the ocean in the belly of a fish, calling out to the Lord, Jonah 2. Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. I cried for help. From deep inside Sheol, you heard my voice. When you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, the current overcame me. Jonah is quite literally in the ocean, but he is also drowning in the depths of his own sin. That's where he ended up, having rejected God's word over his life. I wonder if you've ever felt like Jonah, if you've ever felt like the psalmist, drowning in the ocean of your sin. I wonder if you felt the stain of shame each time after looking at porn. I wonder if you felt the weight of guilt each time you've yelled at your partner in uncontrolled rage. And maybe you've tried to bury the feelings, but it's still there eating away at you. Or maybe you're trying earnestly to live a good life, but the more you try, the more you're aware of every sin, big or small. And so in the end, what you feel is this immense distance between you and God. You feel that you are in the depths. Martin Luther, the famous reformer of the church, he loved the penitential psalms like Psalm 130. He called them the Pauline psalms, the Pauline psalms, because they offered him the hope of God's grace. Before Luther understood the gospel of Christ, he was a devout Catholic monk who tried his very best to please God based on his own efforts. And this is what he wrote. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. Luther was drowning in his sin, and nothing he did on his own efforts could save him from the condemnation of God. 
If you can relate to Luther's words today, I want you to hear this from Psalm 130. There is no depth too far from God where he will not hear your cries for mercy. Why? Because God's grace abounds in deepest waters. And that's good news, isn't it, for the 99% of us who fail. Here's the second point, who could stand, verse 3. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that you may be revered. Uh, The Bible uses a number of different words to shed light on how terrible our sin is. Iniquity is premeditated, ongoing sin. The Psalms also use the word transgression, another word for sin, and that's where you knowingly disobey something God has said. Sin also means missing the mark, falling short of God's standard. Whatever it is, when it comes to standing before a holy God, none of us can claim innocence. Each one of us is guilty of transgression, of iniquity, of sin. Uh, Over the years that I've been conducting funerals, I've noticed that it's become standard practice to show a memorial tribute video of the person who's died. Uh, It's usually about three to four minutes long, composed of meaningful photos at each stage of the person's life, set uh, to the background of some nice music. And I'm sure that if you've attended a funeral, you've seen one of these tributes. They're very moving. Now, I want you to imagine that at your death, After they've shown that the nice video of your life, there's another video that's shown. And this time, it's the account of all your sin. Every skeleton in your closet that you've kept hidden from others, all the sinful words you've used to destroy others, all the acts of transgression and iniquity that you've ever committed, and all the good things that you've neglected to do because of your selfishness up there on the screen for everyone to see. I'd be horrified if you saw that video of my life. I mean, even as a sinner, before sinners, I would be horrified. But imagine that. Imagine a holy God seeing that video. None of us could stand up to that account, could we? Apart from the shame we would all feel, we would stand guilty as charged, rightly condemned for what we have done. And you see, the thing is, God sees that. God could make that video. God could show that video, and he doesn't. Because that's not what he's like. In Luke 15, Jesus tells the parable of the lost son to show what God is like. And in fact, this parable should be called the compassionate father because the father is the high point of this parable. After this willful son had uh, sinned against the father so terribly, after he's realized he's in the depths of his sin, this is what happens. He decides to go home. Verse 20, he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Verse 24, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to 
celebrate. Now, I want you to imagine a a dignified Middle Eastern man trying to run in his long tunic, losing all his dignity as he stumbles because he's trying to run as fast as he can. He doesn't care what people think of him because all he can think of is embracing the son whom he thought was dead. That's what God is like. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, quick to forgive. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. This is God's amazing, undeserved grace. Your grace abounds in deepest waters. And this grace has a purpose. Look at verse 4 of Psalm 130. But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. Uh, The word revered means to stand in awe of. Or in many English translations, in fact, uh, they translate this word as fear. That That is not normally how we think about the result of forgiveness, that we might fear God. Let's unpack this a little bit. Um. The hymn Amazing Grace, there's a couple of lines there that will help us, okay? John Newton wrote these lines very well. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. You ever wondered what those means, those lines mean? God's grace both teaches us to fear him and relieves our fear of him at the same time. You see, there is forgiveness with God, but it's not a cheap forgiveness, It comes at an immense cost to God our Father. Uh, We should not take this forgiveness lightly. We should stand in awe of God. We should fear God appropriately in our relationship with him. We should not take his grace for granted by living a life of deliberate, ongoing sin. But grace also teaches us how to fear God. To God, we are not nameless servants who who are scared of harsh rebuke. We are his children whom he has compassionately embraced. So God's grace relieves us of our fear of punishment. So if you've understood the Christian gospel, if you've understood how God's forgiveness works in your life, then you will understand how grace does both these things in your life. I fear God, and at the same time, I don't fear God. I fear my holy God, I don't want to sin, but I don't fear my compassionate Father. If you're not sure about this, follow this up with me or one of the pastors after the service. Here's the third section. I wait for the Lord. Verse 5. I wait for the Lord, I wait and put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Uh, I I call them restless souls. Uh, People who are busy trying to find solutions to their own mess. Uh, Often motivated by this sense that they're disappointing someone, themselves, God, others. Or maybe they're they're trying to justify their existence in some way. And you can tell who a restless soul is because they're the ones when they sit still, there's a hundred things churning away in their heads. So busy, so tired, 
But it's not, not just a physical tiredness. It's a, it's a tiredness of the soul. Restless. Not at peace. I can identify restless souls because I see that restlessness in me. Uh, my experience of burnout has shown up problems with my thinking. I like self-reliance. I'm busy. I often do before I pray. I find rest difficult. Can you relate to this? Maybe you too are a restless soul. And the solution to a restless soul is verse 5, to wait for the Lord, to put your hope in his word. How long did Abraham have to wait for God to keep his promise that he would give him a son? Do you know how many years it was? 25 years. Did Abraham and Sarah do a good job of waiting? No. They were busy trying to find their own solution, weren't they? Remember Hagar and Ishmael? They, they made a mess of that situation. And what Abraham and Sarah should have done was wait and trust. Eventually, God delivered on his promise when Isaac was born. How long between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament? Do you know how many years? 400 years. 400 years of silence from God. 400 years for God's people to wait upon his promises. And God delivered on his promise when Jesus came into the world. You, you know what the usual options for the restless are? Here they are. Busy distraction. Self-atonement. Blame-shifting. Or the ends justifying the means. And you know what? None of these things work, really. In fact, they usually cause more sin. The restless find waiting so passive, don't we? But biblical waiting is not passive. It's active waiting. Look at, look at the analogy in verse 6. Like watchmen waiting for the morning. Imagine soldiers posted on the wall of the city for night duty. It's the hardest time to defend the city because they might get stealth attacks during the middle of the night. And so they long for the light of the morning. They know dawn is coming, so they wait and watch until the light of dawn. For us to actively wait on the Lord, we take guard by turning to the Bible, by listening to God so that we can cling to his promises. And prayer is another defense for a restless soul. When we pray, we yield control over to God. We say to God, you know best, I do not. And when we yield control, what we find is that God will give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. We seek God as we wait on him. We grow in our love for him, our dependence and our worship of him. For the believer, so much of life is waiting on God, isn't it? Waiting with a chronic health condition without giving in to bitterness. Waiting for God to change a difficult husband because you've tried everything to change him and it doesn't work. Waiting for children 
to finish walking a rebellious path instead of resenting them. Waiting for God to bring a suitable marriage partner without stumbling into sin before that. We find it hard to wait, don't we? We need to make five-year plans. We need to force change. We need to set the agenda. And so often we make an even greater mess. Wait on the Lord. The final section is put your hope in the Lord. Verse 7. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord, and with him is redemption in abundance. And he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. Redemption in the Bible is the language of freeing someone from slavery. In the cultures of the Bible, if you wanted to buy someone's freedom, you had to pay a price for their freedom. And the Bible is clear that what enslaves us is sin. The Bible is clear that the law of God cannot save us. It only points out our guilt. Self-reliance will not work because sin demands a price that we cannot pay. We need a redeemer who will pay that price, a redeemer who will break the chains of sin and death, and God has sent such a saviour, and not even this psalmist knew who he was. But we do, don't we? The Apostle Paul says, says in Ephesians 1 about Christ, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. At the cross, Christ paid the price with his blood. At the cross, our redemption was secured. Sins can be forgiven. Our slavery to sin and death broken. And there you see that word grace. The riches of God's grace. Grace that came to us, not when we scrubbed ourselves up to make ourselves presentable good people, but grace that met us at the very worst when we were sinners. Because God's grace abounds in deepest waters. The psalmist has one final thing to say. And this time it's not a prayer to God. It's an appeal to his people. You see how far he's traveled. He started this psalm as the desperate cries to God of a drowning man. But now he is a man standing on the rock of his salvation with lungs full of air. He is proclaiming to anyone who will listen, put your hope in yourself. No. Put your hope in the Lord. Put your hope in the one who loves sinners. Put your one in the hope who has rescued this drowning soul. Put your hope in the one who sets captives free from guilt and shame. Put your hope in the one who can give you lasting joy and peace and true confidence. Put your hope in the one who will never leave you or forsake you. Friends, where will you put your hope? In last week's sermon in Psalm 88, I encourage you to be real in sharing about suffering and grief with each other. And during the week, someone encouraged me to do the same with this talk, but about sin. 
and how we confess sin to each other. In the New Testament, James talks about that, confessing sin to each other. The book of Galatians also talks about restoring brothers and sisters gently who have sinned. And I might just take the opportunity to share briefly about what I do in a situation like that. I'm going to go through this list of things that if someone shares with me about their sin that I I do. Well, firstly, don't be surprised by their sin. Sometimes we're surprised because it may be a sin that maybe we don't struggle with particularly. But, you know, the reality is any one of us is capable of any sin. And sometimes we, we think that that person, maybe they could never be capable of that sin, but the reality is we're all capable of any sin. Don't be surprised. Secondly, really listen. Just like last week, really listen. Don't interrupt. Give them the opportunity to confess their sins. Sometimes you might ask questions, but you don't need to ask about every detail of their sin because it's probably not helpful for you or them. After this, thank them for sharing because it's probably required a great deal of courage for them to be that vulnerable. And after they've shared, I normally read Psalm 51. This is another one of the penitential psalms. It's the psalm that David wrote after he committed adultery and murder and his sin was exposed by the prophet Nathan. Now, I read this one because it shows that even people like King David could sin terribly against God and others. Psalm 51 also conveys the weight of our sin against God, and it also paints a picture of what repentance looks like. You see, repentance is when you feel bad for God and not just feeling bad for yourself. Psalm 51 also expresses a desire to be made clean by God. Now, after I read that, I I pray for them and with them, but I also encourage them to pray. And to confess to God. Remember what Psalm 130 is saying here. Put your hope in the Lord. And by getting the person to pray, they're putting their hope in the Lord and not in me. It's a good thing if they've confessed to someone, but ultimately they need to put their trust in God. To cry out to him for mercy from the depths. He is the only one who can forgive their sin and wash away their guilt through the cross of Christ. So after they have prayed, then I read 1 John 1, 9 with them. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And I say that that is only possible because of Jesus. God is just. He will punish their sin on Jesus on the cross, but God is also faithful. He will forgive them and he will show them mercy because of Jesus. Now I say to them that they may not feel different, but they need to trust in the promise that they are different, that God does forgive those who confess to him. And lastly, I ask them what they're going to do differently next time. Because repentance is a change in your mind and your direction, not repeating the same mistakes over and over again. Now, if you want to follow up on that list, please speak to me after the service.
Now, if you're in the situation where someone shares with you that they're in a mess because of someone else's sin, then refer to last week's talk, okay? Listen, grieve with them, and then cry out to God with them. Now, the clip I showed you at the start was from the movie Amazing Grace, based on the true story of the campaign by William Wilberforce, a Christian member of the British Parliament, to abolish slavery, which took years and years. A mentor to William Wilberforce was John Newton, the author of perhaps the most well-known Christian hymn, Amazing Grace, a song that is about the depths of his own sin and God's grace shown to him. And Newton became a sailor at age 11. He was forced to join the Royal Navy at 18, where he was flogged with 96 lashes for attempting to desert. He was then forced into slavery at age 20 in West Africa, serving other slaves. He was rescued at age 23, and on his return voyage to England, Newton was caught up in a massive storm where he thought he was going to die. He cried out to God for mercy, and eventually the storm died down, and that was the starting point of Newton's journey towards Christ. He continued working on the seas as a captain of slave ships until the age of 29 when he suffered a massive stroke. From the age of 30, Newton became very serious about studying the Bible, and eventually, seven years later, he became an Anglican minister. At age 63, he wrote a pamphlet called Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade, in which he described the horrific conditions of the slave ships. And he apologized for a confession which comes too late, he said. It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. And he had copies of this pamphlet sent to every member of the British Parliament. And Newton lived to see the abolition of the slave trade the year that he died, aged 82. In his old age, he is quoted as saying, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. Who, for, who could forgive someone like that? Someone who committed horrific acts as a slave trader. God could. Newton wrote his own epitaph on his gravestone in Olney, the church where he pastored. John Newton Clark, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned and appointed to preach the faith he had long laboured to destroy. Your grace abounds in deepest waters. Let me pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that it is in your nature to forgive, to be compassionate, to be gracious. 
to show your mercy. Father, we thank you for psalms like this one that show that we can cry to you from the very deepest waters. There are times when we feel that we are too far away from you. And yet we know, we've been reminded that that is not true. We know the great lengths that you will go to to throw your compassionate embrace around us by sending your son Jesus to die, to redeem us, to set us free from sin and death. Gracious Father, please may your grace teach us to fear you and may your grace relieve our fears. In Jesus' name, amen.